Section 13 of A Bunch of Keys, Where They Were Found and What They Might Have Unlocked, a Christmas book edited by Tom Hood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Key of the Study, Part 2, by W.J. Prowse. And Mary Horton. She too was in London, but she had been obliged to leave her employment, for the captain who could pity his son had no pity for her. There were young men in the family that she served who might, said the captain to her mistress, be deluded as Donald had been. Then when they had removed to London, they dismissed her, not unkindly, but plainly stating why. They offered her a sum of money beyond her wages, and the poor girl had to take it, though her spirit rose against the offer. She must maintain herself. She could not leave her employer's home penniless. So with a heart that was on fire with anger, she thanked them. What harm had she done, she thought. Was it her fault if Donald had loved her, and then, at a word from his father, forsaken her in her need? It was cruel, it was base, it was a shame. And then the current of her thought would change, and she would cry to herself that Donald was right. She was not fit for him. He would have had to blush for her among his friends, and she could not bear to think that Donald, so proud as he was too, should have to blush. No, it was all for the best, and as for her... She must provide for herself elsewhere. She lost the greater part of her money very soon. Employment offices and dishonest advertisers were as plentiful then as now, and this poor girl was easily swindled. And as she drew to the end of her resources, she fell ill, and first her pride would not allow her to send for help to her former mistress, who would have aided her, and then the fever and excitement of her brain told upon her, and she grew much worse. When the poor are kind to the poor, they are very kind indeed, but it is a stupid cant of the day to claim, for all the poor, virtues which are not confined to any one class, thank God. Sometimes the poor are cruel, and Mary Horton's landlady happened to be one of these. Then a young girl who had seen her in her illness took compassion on her, and she was moved to a hospital. Delirium came on and went away, and she was left there, a poor forlorn waif. She was very pretty, and she was destitute when she left the hospital. Over this part of her life let us pass, if you please, as swiftly and gently as possible. It was very short and horrible. Donald, meanwhile, knew nothing of all this. Nay, his father had not scrupled to deceive him in such sort that he thought Mary fickle, or at any rate forgetful, and then struggled to forget himself. It would have been better for them both had the truth been known. The captain had ventured to play Providence, but his scheme was turning out very ill, so that these two things happened on one and the same day. Captain Grant received a commission for his son, and going to his room found the gallant officer of the future huddled up on his bed with his boots on, and with evident signs of disorder and debauch upon his countenance. Thus far was he improved by life under the auspices of his prudent father. Mary Horton left the hospital. Thus had her destiny been shaped by a man not naturally unkind, but willful and headstrong in his own conceit. And for the captain himself, years seemed to have come upon him very suddenly, he grew old before his time, he was weary and tired, and sorrow-stricken and worn out. Thus, to sum up, three people began a new life at the same time. Donald Grant, who sailed away to India, Mary Horton, who once vanished into a highland mist and vanished now into a London fog, Captain Grant, who found his chief hope blighted, and had to console himself as best he might. There is no room here to deal with particulars. You may elaborate every detail of an hour, when you have to do with years, you have to summarise, often imperfectly, often erroneously. Of the three folk with whom we are concerned, 
The Comte Rendu must be brief and hasty, and then we bring them again upon the scene, as another climax, another crisis may demand. The young soldier went away. The chief sense in his heart was a desire for change. He had tried London, and it had tired him. Away in the east, after passing through the usual stage of griffinhood, he got to take an interest in his work. The fellow would be indeed a dull one who, in the first flush of manhood, could find himself set in authority over grave and bearded oriental gentlemen, without a kind of feeling that herein, in this great trust, was involved as great a duty. Boggles, who flukes from Eton into epaulets, may forget this thing. To young Grant, the old clan feeling stood instead of any definite reflection on the subject. He accepted his regiment as, in some sort, his tribe, loved his work, and did it well. The number of Britons, however, who do their duty well is, thank God, so large, that this would have done him little good in re promotion, though much as regards his own moral growth and development. But there came stirring times at last, and he got his chance. He was known in his regiment as a man passionately fond of field sports and of the big game, also as a man who read much, also as a man who seemed to be very old for his age. He stuck to his duties, never kept aloof from whatever social fun might be going on in his station or cantonment, but he was hardly popular. In honest truth, two remorses at least weighed upon him. He felt as if he had injured, disappointed, wounded his father, and as if, to sum the whole affair up quickly, he had been very fickle and shamefully feeble in his conduct towards the poor little girl whom he still loved. The look of Donald Grant was a good deal changed. The florid face had been baked by India into a ruddy brown. Long moustaches curled over his lips, and there were dark circles under his eyes and stern lines on his forehead. He did well in his profession, rose to places of trust. Of a sudden there came upon India a dead calm, an awful silence. Throughout the land there was at once an apparent quiescence and a marvellous activity, a nervous, electrical vivacity. Men who could read the signs of the times, who could look out boldly and with clear vision toward the political horizon, saw a great cloud gathering slowly, the vague sense of an unseen danger, the mysterious foreboding of an unknown peril filled their souls, and at last the storm burst. Some day or another a poet historian will write a grand record of English resistance. It was superb, it was kingly, it was worthy of a race destined to rule the earth. Little blonde ensigns charged, with their white teeth clenched, and their puny fists doubled right into thousands. Grim old bearded colonels awoke to chivalry, Civilians vied with soldiers in gallant endurance, and the ladies, God bless them, so far from troubling this free heroic spirit, breathed into it a great passion and fire. In that struggle, Donald Grant was fortunate enough to have a chance or two. His own regiment turned against him, would not take his life, but stormily marched away to help their kinsmen. He was one of the few officers whom they spared. Soon after, he reached an outlying station that was besieged by the rebels. Provisions ran short in the fort. Privations and bullets removed the majority of the English leaders. Grant, one day, by this time a lieutenant, saw that the only chance left, and it was desperate, lay in a sortie. On a Sunday, the chaplain, whose own physical strength was fast failing him, but whose courage never faltered, administered the sacrament to the faithful little company who were beleaguered. On the Monday the sortie was made, and when the odds seemed heavily against the English, there was a sudden wavering in the enemy's line, and a cloud of dust far away. Later, there came a ringing cheer in the jolly, manly tone of our race. The station was saved, and Grant, with a great sword gash on his face, heard, as he fainted, a loud cry of victory. Then the women gathered round him, nursing. He soon recovered. In days like those, a man's superb vital force and pluck enable him to bear up against wounds very readily. 
He fails only when the excitement is over and the reaction has set in. Recovering, he gained fresh honours, and when the great mutiny had been trodden underfoot by Colin Campbell, he came home. If his life had for many years hung heavily upon his hands, and had only become tolerable when at length a great national crisis gave him a chance, judge how the years had passed at home with Mary. After a very short and terrible period, she had found friends, and worked from that time in many ways, all hard enough, but all honest. By degrees, she drifted towards the theatre. She was very handsome, but with a beauty that would rather awe than attract. She had admirers, of course, but she was quite indifferent to their admiration. Nay, she had suffered so horribly that her temper had grown fierce and resentful. She could not look upon her life with resignation. She regarded it with intense and disdainful anger. She despised herself even more than she despised others. Yet there were some of her friends to whom she was different in her bearing, and one of those was a man older than herself, one John Lane, who watched over her with a kind of canine fidelity. He was merely a violin player in an orchestra, but he had a little money from other sources, amongst other things from lessons. He was shrewd, kindly, a little selfish. When Mary, after many tentatives in other directions, tried the stage, John Lane saw that her ultimate success was certain. He set himself to work for her, rendered her many services, made himself necessary to her, and won, at least, her gratitude and affection. When he asked her to marry him, which at length he did, Mary was frank and honest in reply, told him of her hideous troubles, and also of the love which preceded them owned that her heart was untouched by him in the way that a woman's should be by the man who seeks her for a wife, but, for the rest, confessed that she liked him very much, was grateful to him. Briefly, would marry him if, knowing all this, he still persevered. John Lane pressed his suit. They were married very quietly. Nor were they altogether unhappy. Love on his part, cordial liking and gratitude on hers, were the elements of a tolerably peaceful married life. But her heart was still hungry, John Lane was a good husband, no doubt, and she was true and good to him, but her life seemed a waste. At length, John, after infinite diplomacy, so succeeded that Mary was engaged at a leading London theatre. This engagement was to her what the Indian mutiny was to Grant. It called forth her full capacity, gave her something about which she could be in earnest. Before long she was recognised, with her stern beauty, sombre and passionate, she swayed the hearts of her audience more potently than by winning graces and pleasant smiles, on which most of her rivals depended. As she swept across the stage, you trembled, for in her eyes there was a light which was terrible, and the voice, resonant and musical though it was, could also give such point to a sneer, such hideous emphasis to a sarcasm, such rage of expression to invective, that involuntarily you shuddered, as before a woman who had some private grief, some private wrong, some misery upon which she brooded and which tortured her very soul. And now for the third life, for this, after all, was the saddest. Grant's father, as we said, tried to guide Grant, but who could guide Grant's father? The captain missed his boy very much. The relations had grown somewhat cold and embarrassing, but when Donald was absolutely gone, the captain's love seemed to redouble. All their awkwardness, their petty troubles, went out of the captain's mind. He could only think of the finest qualities of the lad, forgot the sorry way in which Donald had yielded to London, and simply recollected the Highland time. They had lived so long together that the house was horribly lonely without Donald, and his letters, when they came, were certainly affectionate, but to the father it seemed as though they were marked by a certain restraint, as if their very affection were hardly free and natural, but rather a mere matter of duty. All this pained him bitterly. What had he done? 
He had kept Donald from sacrificing his prospects in life, had saved him from a ridiculous marriage. Yes, this was true, but at what cost? Was Donald, no matter what his prospects, at all happy or contented? The captain knew that he was not, and so there preyed upon him this double regret, that he had lost some portion of his son's affection, and that he had not succeeded in his plans for his son's good. He left London now and then for Scotland, but it was dreary and sad to tramp about with his keepers and without Donald. All their favourite haunts, bridges, ledges of rock and so forth, only reminded him of his loss. Then he grew gloomy and drank. By and by, field sports had no longer any charm for him, and his life grew to be without an object. No doubt Donald would return some time or other, but it would not be the same Donald. He wanted him back and yet feared to see him. It would be sweet to go down to the old spots with him if the lad had not changed. Letters came frequently enough, but they were not very long ones, nor so cordial as those of a son should be. And the father winced as he saw that Donald was growing worldly wise after his fashion, and that the fashion was not a good one. He had failed, obviously made a bungle of his interference. These thoughts haunted him perpetually, and he grew to be very wretched. A lonely man, getting old too, what use was he to anybody, even to himself? He had money, but there were things which it could not buy him. A useless old stager, sir, would the captain say to his few intimates. Nor were his associates of the best kind. He disliked now those quiet English drawing rooms to which he used to introduce Donald so proudly. The sight of that kind of domestic happiness hurt him. He saw parents who certainly could not love their children more than he, surrounded by grown-up sons who were taking their place in the world and doing credit to their names. So was Donald too, no doubt. He was a capital soldier, of course. All the grants would be that. But he was buried in India, and the old man's heart was fierce and angry, and yet torn by a wild craving to see his son again, to live the good old life once more. How could he bear this misery, he asked himself. How could anyone bear it, lonely, wretched old man? He would go no more into houses where he saw such happiness, which was given so readily to other people, denied so cruelly to him. Few people, who saw him walking quietly to his club, Guess what a furnace of passion was burning within him. With what wild cries at night time he woke, shouting for Donald, or how he hated the house his son had left. Long hours he would sit in the study, brooding over this curse that had seemed to come upon him, until he could not bear to sit alone any more. He went about amongst men to whom his nature would have been unintelligible, calm, cynical men of the world, with their affections very much under their own control. He needed excitement, and he found it where such a man was likely to seek it, at the gaming table. He cared little for money lost or won. What he needed was the morbid emotion of the gambler. This he got, and then steadily went downhill, drifting on to a miserable old age, losing his own self-respect, and only happy sometimes in dreams. The most reckless successes are not those of youth. They are those committed by men who, after living reputably for many years, break loose again. Sailing homeward, Donald Grant had many bad dreams, but he never fancied that there would be any very great change in his father. The stormy life he had led had somewhat tired him. The struggle was superb while it lasted. Now that it was over, and his nerves were no longer at full tension, the chief desire of his soul was rest. He had lived at high pressure, but there is a time for all things. As he paced the deck of an evening, and watched the glory of the sunset, thoughts of the old home rushed in upon him, so that he yearned to see his father, and then to go back into Scotland with him and wander about arm in arm. He had seen grander mountains than Cruachan, but he wanted now to watch the curl of the clouds around the old hill, 
Glenorchy would seem very small after the great gorges of the Himalayas, and there was the memory about it of a deep sorrow. Still, he would like to gaze again into Salmon Pool, and see the mountain ashes once more, and as for his disappointment, that, as he supposed, could give him no further pain. Just one twinge, perchance, like the aching of an old wound might he suffer when he came to the spot where he parted with Mary. But it was very long ago. Doubtless she was married by this time. If not, did it greatly matter? He had gone away a boy, he was coming back a man. Yet there leapt up in his heart the spirit of boyhood, eager and exultant, as he thought of the long, long days that he would pass with his father. Of course, father would be old, hardly able to do much in the way of deer-stalking. Well, perhaps that, too, was all the better. Grant bethought himself how his father used to lift him in his arms when he tired, how he took him to all the loveliest nooks about the country. Well, this would be changed now. It would be his turn to guide and support— and with a very tender love he thanked God that he had been spared in battle and saved from disease to go home to his father thus and comfort him. The captain knew that his boy was coming back, but Donald had started earlier than he first intended, and would himself bring the first news of his actual return. The old man winced as he thought of the meeting. He looked in the glass, saw his wrinkles, but saw also that he had not been altered merely by time. He grew very miserable and ashamed that he should have to meet his son thus, to be afraid of him. It was a bad ending to a life, this. He had made a very wretched business of it after all. He was grey, but venerable? What? That man who slinks into a gambling house, and watches the turn of the game with eyes bloodshot and bleared, who is almost the mockery of younger players, the pity of a few men of his own time. He could hardly call him venerable. Could he not break away from all this and make himself a little worthier of his son, whose name had figured with honour in Outram's own dispatches? No, it was too late, or else he was too feeble. Still, would Donald but come and love him a little better than he feared, they might go away together, away from this horrible city that had so profaned and polluted both of them, back to the old house. Father and son both had the same simple plan of life, but it was all in the future. And now, just now, until Donald came, the captain could not do much by himself. Besides, and this was the dreariest thought, this it was which brought tears, childish tears to his eyes, Donald might be shocked at his utter wreck, might find it hard to love him in the old way. The poor man's nerve was gone, and there was only one means now by which he could ever rouse himself to action, even to action that did but bring nearer the bad, bad end." As Donald hurried on, finding steam itself slow, so great grew his impatience, a strange morbid restlessness possessed him, a nervous irritability. He was petulant with his own servants, moody and reserved with his fellow passengers. There is little time wasted by the overland route, but the hours seemed to grow horribly long. He could do nothing to get on faster, and this sense of impotence, absurd though he felt it to be, annoyed him. He slept little, and never woke refreshed. Nay, to the doctors it seemed as though he were lashing himself into a state of fever, and one man cautioned him, but got scanty thanks for the warning. Marseille at last, and the train thundered along across France too slowly for his haste. His overwrought brain seemed to pant and throb with every beat of the engines, and with his head thrust out of the window facing the rush of the wind, he could have shouted to the very stokers and sworn at them for making no more speed. And now, on a foggy day, he crossed the channel, peering out through the mist for the first English light, and then again the train thundered, and again his brain panted and throbbed. It was a dull November evening when he reached London, and the place seemed hatefully squalid to him as he drove home to his father's house. 
Any noise seemed to drive him mad. The very rattle of his cab wheels worried him. The captain was not at home. It was uncertain when he would return, the servant said. He might be late. He was sometimes late. Wouldn't the gentleman call again? Oh, it was Mr. Donald. Yes, would Mr. Donald wait? It was hard to have hurried as he had, and get this for his welcome, but a real disappointment troubled him less than his merely fantastic miseries. Nay, now that he had got home, and the life of his dreams could not be many hours from him, he was almost pleased that a little time longer was left. He walked out into the streets, laughing at himself. How ridiculous had been his impatience! What a cross-grained, evil-tempered wretch he had been on the journey! Well, it was all right now. He had but to kill a few hours. His father might be late. Then Donald thought of the old man again, fancied him at his club, smoking his honest cigar with some other old Indians, talking about himself very likely. A grey-haired man, but handsome still and courtly. Proud of his son, too. What a life they would have. How to pass the time. He would not hunt for his father. He did not want strangers at that meeting. He strolled into a theatre, the first he passed, and for a time the figures on the stage were mere puppets, scarcely visible, indeed, for his own drama was what he thought about, and he sat there indolently, with half-shut eyes, and twitched now and then his yellow beard, and played with his long moustaches idly. But at length a sudden burst of applause roused him from his reverie. The great actress of the night entered. A strange, wild thrill went through him like a sword thrust as he saw her. The look of the man changed at once as he rose in his stall, erect and eager, careless of the cry to sit down, and waited until she spoke. It was her voice, richer and fuller, but hers. And then, as with a superb gesture, she turned and saw him, and with a spasm she seemed for just one second to reel upon the stage as though she would fall, then, conquering her pain by her courage, magnificently declaimed. But she never looked that way again all night. And when Lane carried her home, she fell with a pitiful moan upon the floor, and would not rise. Could she but faint? No. Consciousness, fiery, intense, never left her for a moment. The whole love of Donald's heart had yearned towards her again. The passion long suppressed had rebelled and triumphed. And in the hour when it arose, he learnt that it was hopeless, that Mary was married. How brave she was! How gloriously she had borne herself in that fierce momentary ordeal. Then there came a great bitterness in Grant's soul, a recollection almost angry of their old love, almost wrathful of his father's conduct. He shuddered at his own evil thoughts. But he could not yet go home, not yet for a little while. Moodily he walked about the streets. He had not known what a place that love of his yet held in his heart. Still there was much left to live for and solemnly he blessed his father, to whom he would say no word that should arouse the recollection of their one dispute. He turned homewards, and then came the pang, then came the culminating agony, for as he approached the house, he passed an old man who was staggering unsteadily, and as he turned aside to avoid him, their eyes met. They had wept together. Their love had survived sorrow, even shame. Donald was in bed, stupid and insensible, neither waking nor asleep. The old man sat alone in the study. His head rested between his hands, but when he raised it a little, there was on it an awful look of wistful sorrow and a strange, pitiful bewilderment. His nerves were shattered. Nerves? Why, his very heart was crushed. He tried to plot and think, 
but the blood rushed to his temples, and his head seemed as though it would burst. After a time he pulled his writing case towards him. His hand shook, for many reasons, but with his faltering fingers he scrawled a few lines, idly repeating words. My dear, dear boy, after a little while I shall be better, and we will see each other again, and live very happily, but I cannot face you for a day or two. How the dull pain grew. But not yet, Donald, dear. Do not blame me when you read this. But tonight I am going away. The pain was worse. He must bathe his temples before he could end the letter. He rose from his chair, then fell heavily forward on the table, muttering Donald's still, as the blood trickled to the desk, staining it, and then he did not mutter any more. Tonight I am going away, he had written, and now indeed he had gone. End of section 13. Recording by Squeaky.